CNN. 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 Radio. This is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people who have the experience or ideas to change the way we see the world. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder, and I have an admission to make. I have been knocked down many times, which really isn't much of an admission. We all get knocked down, and so do our institutions. Our guest today has traveled the world to try to figure out what makes us bounce back after we're knocked down. His name is Andrew Zoli, author of the new book, Resilience. He is also founder of the popular annual conference on perspective-changing ideas called PopTech, which will actually take place in Maine later this week. And the theme of that will be resilience. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, the one thing I know about you is we have something in common. We are fathers of young children. And if there is one thing we want for our children more than anything else, it's to be resilient. Uh, t- tell me about what makes kids and adults resilient. What do you know about that? Well, my co-author and I spent the last four years traveling around the world from neuroscience labs to from the coral reefs of Palau to the back streets of Palestine, all over the world, looking at the correlates of resilient people, communities, systems. And new science is telling us all kinds of important things about how to build resilient people, how to bolster the resilience of folks. Scientists have been looking at and discovering the critical role that two things play in defining our personal resilience. The first one has to do with our beliefs, and the second one has to do with our habits of mind. On the belief side, it turns out that if you uh, believe that the world is a meaningful place, if you believe that your actions have real consequences, that you have agency in the world, And if you believe that successes and failures are placed in your life to teach you things rather than be accidents of chance, you're much more likely to process the inevitable failures and disruptions that come along with any human life in a very different way. And that's why some psychologists who study something called hardiness, psychological hardiness, have found that people who have a personal spiritual life or a personal cosmology or a religious practice are on average more resilient to potentially traumatic events than those who are not. Now, while it's great to say that our beliefs and these other factors that we don't control uh, shape our resilience, what we're beginning to learn are some powerful things we can do to bolster our resilience intentionally and skills that we can actually train, habits of mind that we can cultivate to psychologically bolster Uh, uh, resilience, and that can begin in childhood. So, as a father, I mean, you have traveled a long distance. You've gotten a lot of knowledge. We're going to get to some of that soon. Have your travels and have your insights, what you've learned during this journey, is that changing the way you're parenting? Without question. Um, And that really goes to those habits of mind again. You know, there's a pioneering group of neuroscience researchers, um, starting with a wonderful researcher named Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin, who began to look at the impact that things like mindfulness meditation practices have on the way in which we process the emotional content of 
daily life and disruptions and even potentially traumatic events when they occur. And what, well, by studying the, he literally hooked up the, the brains of these monks to fMRI equipment and began to peer inside. And he and his colleagues discovered something very powerful about the ability of these monks cultivating mindfulness and compassion to process the emotional content of life in a very different way. And the insights that have been gleaned from that process are now being taught uh, to first responders, to emergency room physicians, to active duty military personnel uh, who are in high stress environments. And just as powerfully, recently a team of researchers at Emory University down in Atlanta, working with Atlanta's Department of Child Services, took those same skills and used them with foster children and found not only that they were able to bolster the psychological resilience of children who came out of very traumatic circumstances, but also changed the physical, the, their physiology, particularly the marker of a particular protein that's associated with cellular inflammation in the body. Now, though all of those insights have come home to me as we have a three-year-old, and we're actually, you know, three-year-olds are wonderful temper tantrum laden <laughs> creatures who are learning to uh, how, how to deal with the word no and how to moderate their own mind states. So we uh, do things to, to practice uh, uh, quieting the brain and we do some breathing exercises. These are not full on meditation techniques, but they have actually changed the way that I uh, interact with my daughter who's about three. Oh, you've got the edge on the other parents. That's it. <laughs> You've got that edge. Instead of being hyper-competitive, you're hyper-calm. There's no competition with you now. <laughs> if only that were the case. I, 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 you know, I certainly don't put, hold myself out as any paragon of uh, parenting excellence. Like every other parent of small children, it's largely improvising and trying to keep one step ahead of the chaos. But I, certainly we have found in, in our lives as parents that these tools which are applied to people in very stressful circumstances are helpful not just to us, uh, but they're also helpful to our children. And, and increasingly, researchers are finding that's true generally. If you're just joining us, this is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people who can change the way we see the world. Our guest today is Andrew Zoli, author of the new book, Resilience. You just mentioned a word, I don't know if it's in your book, improvising. I'm really into improvisation. And the cardinal rule of improvisation is do not block, right? Somebody gives you a premise, you don't say no, but you can steer it in your own way. And it occurs to me, is there anything in what you found that would tell us that an ability to improvise increases your resilience? Absolutely. And you know where you see that is not just at the individual level, at the level of everyday interactions, but you also see it at the level of big systems, when things go badly wrong. Um, in fact, the term for it that we reintroduce uh, in the book, it was first popularized in the 1970s, um, was a term called adhocracy. It's the opposite of a bureaucracy. When you find a disruption occurs, uh, a big disruption, an earthquake, a flood, a, a terrible economic uh, or social dislocation or a public health outbreak, the responses that are the most resilient are the ones that are often creative, improvisational, informal, collaborative. They, they don't, it's not like some bureaucrat reaches up on the shelf, grabs plan 23B, opens to the third tab and says, ah, this is what we do. These are the six steps. Instead, what you find is a kind of complex soup of social networks 
empowered individuals, bits of institutions, uh, improvised technology platforms, all working together to deal with what were unforeseeable circumstances. So one of the most powerful things we can do to build the resilience of society is to bolster our ability to be creative and improvisational. It's to remember that resilience is ultimately a creative act. Uh, so, so this is a, first of all, by the way, my interview was taken from that file 23B, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> That's good to know. Uh, you, you know, it really, it's such an overwhelming task that you took on here because how many miles did you travel for this book? Oh, we must have traveled a hundred or 150,000 miles around the world. I mean, all over the planet. All right. So with given all this, and we come back to what you told me earlier, that, that your beliefs help determine how resilient you are. If you believe the world is a meaningful place, if successes and failures have a reason, you're going to be more resilient. And that gets to the point of what stories do we tell each other? And, and I know in your book, you came in your journeys, you came across some very significant stories that cultures transmit to each other that seem to make them more resilient. Give me an example. I know you have one from Japan that's fascinating. Well, in fact, actually, that's a particularly important thing to say. You know, around the world, wherever we found resilience, and whenever you're talking about resilience, you're talking about resilience to something over some time frame. One of the things that we found was the presence of a deep cultural memory of the possibility of failure. One of the reasons why many natural disasters or man-made disasters are often referred to in the media as once in a generation is because it takes about a generation for people to forget that such a catastrophe is possible. And in Japan, uh, there's a wonderful story about that. A thousand years ago, there was another mega tsunami, a little more than a thousand years ago. And the island, the residents of a small island, a fishing village in, on an island in Japan, in the presence of the rising waters, scrambled. They did the rational thing. They scrambled to the top of the highest point of, on this small island. And unfortunately, just as they got to the top, a secondary wave of the tsunami came around from the other direction and wiped everybody out. And so in that place, a thousand years ago, in a place called uh, Murahama, a small shrine was erected, a religious shrine that has main, been maintained to this, to this day that indi- not only commemorates the fact of such a terrible mega tsunami, which is a huge outlier event, doesn't happen even in, over centuries, uh, but indicates to, to people who live in, the, in that region that even this place that looks safe is not safe from the waters. And if the waters rise again, don't come here, because even though this looks safe, this isn't the right place. And that shrine, the signaling power of that shrine saved lives in the Japanese tsunami of, of 2011, the one that Fukushima that we just, uh, that we just lived through. And it, sign- it was a signal sent across a thousand years of human history uh, to future generations. And having that kind of cultural memory is hugely important. It's the reason that we find resilience in places like the Gulf Coast, because those are places that have a vital, active memory of just how bad things can be. Which brings us back to children, because if you shelter them too much, I guess, the shock of bad things could really hurt their resilience. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's it's a really hard counterintuitive thing to do as a parent, because, of course, you see the child that you love and that is part of you came f- ushered from you 
about to do something that's probably going to result in a bump and a screaming, <laughs> about a screaming. Uh, you know, they're, they're wobbling there. And at a certain point, they need to learn not to go there. And every instinct that you may have as a parent, and certainly the ones that I have on a daily basis, are to rush in and protect them from the possibility of failure. But in fact, it's, it's the presence of failure. It's the experience of failure. And, and this is one of the reasons why uh, social scientists who study praise, which is related to this issue, uh, find that overpraise of young children is really detrimental. It actually pressures children who feel that they cannot actually perform badly. They had better perform up to the level of their praise. And as a result, uh, it can be paralyzing to be overpraised in the same way that it can be paralyzing to be overly protected. Um, so, you know, we have to let people experience failures because failures are the the process and they're the circumstance within which learning occurs. And that's true of systems and it's true of children, it's true of adults, it's true of companies, it's true of industries and societies. Once again, this is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people who have the experience or insights to change the way we see the world. We've been speaking with Andrew Zoli, author of the new book, Resilience. All right, now what happens if you're a pretty resilient guy or woman and you're in a company or in, a, in an institution that doesn't really tell have this cultural memory of the possibility of failure, or not, or not necessarily, let me put it another way, I mean, every institution has some memory, probably, of failure, but they don't necessarily incorporate it into the stories they tell and the communications they have with their employees, right? Because most, uh, most corporate memos are very positive. Uh, how is an individual supposed to remain resilient and thrive within an institution that doesn't pursue these resilient practices? Well, it's a real challenge. There's, and one of the things that you identify is that the domains within which we think about resilience are connected. You can be a highly resilient person in a highly unresilient and fragile environment and still be affected by disruptions because of things that are external to you. Now, the, one of the things that we found that was really important about building resilient enterprises is um, something that's a sort of surprising counterintuitive idea. For years, when we think about leadership, we often either talk about the big square-jawed visionary CEO who points at the future and says, that's where we're going. Or we talk about the bottom-up street-level activist who builds a bottom-up movement for change. Uh, that affects the organization, sort of internal change agents. But one of the things that we found uh, over and over again when looking at uh, enterprise resilience, organizational resilience, was the incredibly important role that, a, that an empowered middle class, the, the middle tier of organizations, is um, uh, the role that they play. Now, we, we have so gutted middle management in, in American uh, corporations and organizations that we only ever see them when we're making fun of them in Dilbert cartoons. But in fact, it's that lieutenant commander layer. It's the middle layer of leadership where the, when the rubber meets the road, because they're not, the leaders are directing, but they can't actually implement. When you're Three-year-olds, are they, your children? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When your three-year-olds yeah. are a little old, a bit older, old enough to understand the story of your journey uh, on the book of resilience, 
How would you describe that 150,000-mile journey to them when they're in elementary school to sort of instill those principles we talked about earlier of, you know, the belief that your world is a meaningful place, but that there are not just successes, but failures as well. What would you tell them about how you gathered the information from this book that in some way would increase their resilience? It's a great question. You know, what I learned on the road and what I saw with my colleagues and my co-author all over the planet was that we face really serious fundamental challenges that aren't going to go away. It took us a long time uh, to begin to see the real impacts of climate change, but they're here now around the world. If you go to East Africa, they're here today. Those are not future possibilities. They're present tense realities for people. Uh, and we're seeing those, all, those kinds of disruptions all over the world. So our, my children, our, our children, are going to live in a world that's more volatile, that is filled with more ups and downs, maybe even than the one that we lived in. But this is the thing we saw over and over again. The world is full. It's bursting with solutions. It's bursting with approaches for building resilience. And there are in the ways that coral reefs self-organize and manage the inevitable disruptions. There are incredible lessons in the natural world. There are important lessons in other cultures. Uh, and what we have to do is deal honestly and truthfully with disruptions when they occur and keep our eyes open to the widest array of creative possibilities. And if we do that, we've taken a huge step toward resilience. And, and that's really why I, why I did it, to, to learn about it, and what I hope my children and, and others uh, gain from the journey. Andrew Zoli, if I, if I had to rename your book, I would keep the title Resilience, and maybe instead of Why Things Bounce Back, I would use this phrase you just used with me, the world is bursting with it. Resilience. Yes, the world is bursting right. with it, which is really inspiring and, and very encouraging. And uh, I, I'm leaving this interview uh, more encouraged than when I came into it. So thank you for joining us on CNN Profiles. Andrew Zoli, author of Resilience, Why Things Bounce Back. Thank you. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear in this age of social media, do not be shy. Share. Share.